Where you sent me packing down Green River Valley I knew that if you couldn't then No one would have Yo, this is Adam. My, uh, my grandpa used to answer the phone yellow, and uh, this episode makes me feel sort of yellow because I'm talking with an artist I'm in awe of, the amazing tattoo artist Phil Bartell um, of Rising Tide Tattoo in Boulder. Um, Phil and I have some things in common because we both have a background playing in punk bands, and we're both from back east, and um, our kids both attend Shambhala Sun Camp in Colorado. You may have heard of a Tibetan named Trungpa Rinpoche, who Phil and I will mention at some point in this chat. Uh, more importantly, Phil talks about his background from New Jersey to Boulder and his family and his uh, his inspiration and his his artistic education of many kinds and you know basically how he became one of the most respected tattoo artists in, in Colorado I have a lot of tattoos but Phil has more knowledge of tattoo art and just art in general in his pinky finger than I have in my tattoo covered arms um, that reminds me my great friend Mike Stapleton of Dice Tattoo in New York City um, actually did the Mile High Stash logo. And if you're ever in Manhattan, you better go straight to Dice Tattoo to get some work done by Mike. Um, anyway, my conversation with Phil Bartell is brought to you by the magazine Thirst Colorado and the wonderful little distillery, restaurant, and venue Full Throttle in Estes Park. I also want to make sure that whatever you do today, you turn on 105.5 The Colorado Sound in your car, on your hike, at work, even while getting tattooed. Um, the DJs on The Colorado Sound pretty much play whatever they want, and it's always good. Um, here's my chat with the amazing tattoo artist, Phil Bartell. Uh, I don't usually fist bump my guests as they're choosing their Mile High Stash records, but some of Phil's choices were sort of my guiding lights in life. Full Throttle is a boutique distillery in downtown Estes Park, Colorado that's a family-friendly offshoot of the South Dakota Full Throttle Saloon, which might be the biggest biker bar on earth. In addition to moonshine, whiskey, and vodka, the cozy Estes Park version of Full Throttle right on Elkhorn Avenue features great live local music and sells yummy lunch and dinner as well as Full Throttle clothing and souvenirs, sauces, jams and jellies, and even scented candles. Stop by Full Throttle Distillery in Estes Park to taste and purchase some of their 15 flavored moonshines and four whiskeys, plus non-alcoholic slushies for kids. Phil Bartell is here with us. He is maybe the most well-known tattoo artist right now in Boulder um, at Rising Tide. Was previously at Boulder Inc., right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Where I, that's how I came to Colorado. Yeah, and he's also very involved in the Shambhala community here, which we'll get into, mm. and is a, is a former rock and roller, punk rocker, mm -hmm. you know. But I guess once 
Oh, punk rocker, always a punk rocker. It's in your veins. I mean, you still have a rockabilly <laughs> look to you. Ah, uh, yeah. 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 I basically have this haircut because I can. Right. Most guys my age are bald, so <laughs> I just rock it for them. That's part of why I look like a homeless person right now with <laughs> my long hair. I'm like, man, as long as I can keep growing, I'm just like going to do it. I got it. Yeah, yeah. So take us back. You're from New Jersey, right? Oh, yeah. I grew up in New Jersey. And what was your childhood like? Hmm. Feral at times. Feral? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty feral. <laughs> it was like, you know, lights on at six, get home, or you're in trouble. We were pretty wild out and about all the time. Catholic? Uh, Catholic. That's why you were well, so feral. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> we were Episcopalian, my parents, oh. but I went to a Catholic school. That's yeah. why I hesitate there. Uh, Until when? Like all through high school? No, actually, it's up to middle school. Okay. I jumped into middle uh, middle school into public, and it was fucking awesome. There was so much freedom. Mm. And uh, it's interesting because my daughter is going through middle school now, mm. as is yours. Yeah. And it's like, I don't remember middle school being so awful. <laughs> but I, then again, I was like getting out of Catholic school and right. I wore jeans. I was just stoked about that. Mm. And I had a whole, I, I was the new kid, so it was kind of cool because I didn't have all the old friendships and the grudges and the cliques, and I kind of could float between people. So yeah, I had a really good middle school. I had fun with that. <laughs> what did your parents do? Uh, let's see. My dad worked for Bell Labs. He was like engineer-minded, um, and he kind of went from a grunt doing circuit board work and working on the first computers to managing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And my mom... She had the family business, which was three generations of opticianry. Oh, wow. So she had a store in Westfield that she bought off her father. So, And you were born in what, 1977? Eight? Mm, no, 74. 74? Yeah, almost 74. And you're looking good. Yeah. Wow. I'm inside a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, uh, when did you start playing music? Hmm, I wanted to play drums. And I remember my mom being like, you got to learn piano first. And my mm -hmm. grandmother died and we had her piano. And I must have been 12. And I took two lessons and I hated it. It was like the worst thing ever. I was like, this sucks. I want to mm -hmm. hit things. I want to yeah. play drums. And uh, she said, no, you know, you didn't do the piano, man. And now that I look back, I'm like, shit, I wish I'd learned piano. I mm -hmm. theory. I would have learned notes, or scales. You know, it's it's such a known catalyst for other great ventures in music but i didn't i was young and frustrated and pissed so my buddy adam played bass in a band and so i would go over his house all the time we'd skate together and i go over and skate over there and, and just he would sit there and practice playing bass and i was like cool man and then sat in on a couple of his practices with his band i was like that's fucking rad you know and you know, I just think I'd seen another state of mind and I was like, oh man, you know, like garage band style, this is cool. And he just started showing me stuff. So I started playing bass with Adam basically and then uh, convinced my old man to lend me some money to buy my first bass, which was a, uh, God, what was that thing? It doesn't matter. But I bought a bass and then it's where I started. So that was probably like 14. 14, and you were in a band 15, from the time that you were playing. 15, I started playing a band, yeah. 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 And when did you first, you know, go out on the road doing shows and making mm -hmm. records? I think we put out our first record when I was 17. We put out a 7-inch. First we started with tapes. That was back when people did demo tapes. So we did a demo tape. And that was really fun. First time I've been in a studio. 
And then we did a couple seven inches after that. One was a double seven inch. That was really fun to press it. And it was DIY back then. We did all the labels ourselves and bagged it all for before every show. And mm-hmm. I was also big into doing all the, um, we did patches and t-shirt designs and silk screen yeah. in our basement. We did all that stuff. So it was. It's such a big part of punk music is that you do it all yourself. You do it all. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, fun. Yeah. I, I I really loved that, and it kept me out of a lot of trouble because uh, a lot of my friends were just you know drinking and drugging and doing stuff, and then I had this group of friends, and we got into like you know Minor Threat. And mm-hmm. It was early straight edge stuff, not the beat you up if you have a beer in your hand kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was more like fringe. But you know, I grew up with two alcoholic parents, so for me, it was kind of like, oh, this is a subculture I can dive into mm-hmm. and like survive and you know have fun so that's that's what music started for me what kind of reaction did your parents have to your obsession i think they were stoked actually they were kind of like what are we going to do with this kid where is he going he skateboards that's great but what are you going to do with that and uh he's playing music so he's busy at least he's not causing trouble Mm -hmm. so what did you do immediately after high school I got into college, actually. I got into an art school called Maryland, Maryland Institute College of the Art in Baltimore, MICA, which was a really, really cool school. And I was definitely, like, out of my element there because I didn't really get into art in a fundamental sense till I was in 11th grade. So I kind of had to, like, play catch-up. There were kids from art high schools and such there. And so I was on probation for the first two semesters, and I just had to kick ass and really work hard. And... I'm good at that. I can dig in. So I can, mm. I really dug into school and I had a really good time. I met a lot of cool people and um, I learned a lot about art mm-hmm. and just being in a different city. Baltimore was wild. That was 92, 93. So a lot of people know that show, The Wire. Yeah, yeah. And that was like filmed basically when I was living there. That was the era and it was crazy. You'd walk around and turn a corner and someone holds you up with a gun. Did that happen to you? Yeah, I got held up twice in Baltimore. When you were like 18, 19? Yeah, I was probably 19 then, yeah. Wow. A couple couple crazy times. One was totally nuts. The kid was t- so rolling. I think he was on coke, but um, yeah, got out of everything all right. Yeah, you're yeah. still here. So, yeah. Um, when did you know that it was tattoos? Like when, when was that a thing for you? Mm. I remember going to City Gardens in... Um, where was that that was in uh princeton near princeton there's a place called city gardens really cool underground punk shows and and full-on punk shows so all the big names would come through there so we would go there a bunch of us would get in whoever's car and drive there and i remember seeing a bunch of um, misfits tattoos on people i remember seeing especially there was this guy in front of me in the crowd and he had a die die my darling tattoo on his shoulder you know through the wine glass right 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 i just remember watching that the whole show being like that is so cool and uh do you have any Misfits tattoos? I don't. I don't know why. I mean, they were such a big band for me, mm-hmm. especially back then, like 15 to 18. I was just like all about the Misfits. But that was the first time you saw a tattoo and thought like, this is Yeah, it, it was like, that's fucking cool. Mm-hmm. And and I knew people with tattoos. I had an Uncle Charlie, my mom's Uncle Charlie. So my, my great Uncle Charlie, who was an um, ex-military guy. And he had a bunch of really cool tattoos from my point of view at whatever, nine. And I was just like, whoa, tattoos. And he would catch me looking at him and he'd be like, just give me a whole line of shit about it. Mm-hmm. He would just be like, don't you fucking look at it, blah, 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 blah. 
And I never liked him. He was kind of an asshole in our mm. family and never liked Uncle Charlie, but he had tattoos and yeah. I thought that was really cool. So that was the first time I saw tattoos. And then I started doing a lot of flyers for the punk shows that we were putting together and having VFW halls and whatnot and doing t-shirt designs. And a couple of people who were fans of our band or kids I knew in high school would come back with them as tattoos. And these are just designs I was drawing for flyers. You know? Oh, wow. And so that was the first time I was like, huh. What did that feel like to, to have your art on someone's body? It was kind of over. I was like, whoa, it was cool. It was like, wow, I got to put that permanently on him. And I just drew that in my bedroom. You know? But like, you didn't have cool. any at this point. I didn't have any. I got my first tattoo at 15. Okay. That's a crazy story. But uh, prior to that, I was hand poking myself and my brother and my friends in my band. So mm-hmm. we were doing a lot of hand poke back then. Back then it was just, uh, you know, a sewing needle in India ink. It wasn't any of the fancier hand poke designs you see online now mm-hmm. nowadays but uh yeah we started there like most people and anyway i then got a machine i traded an rc car i had for this kid who had a kit he had a tattoo kit and he had this old black suitcase he brought in it was like a doctor's suitcase and i was like all right man let's make this trade and we did it in my basement i traded them and then i had the kit and i had it like under my bed and i would take it out and look at it and be like this is so fucking cool and mm-hmm. so i started tattooing myself i did like a small tattoo myself totally butchered it where is it or is it covered uh, it's up underneath it? this one on my wrist yeah. but man i just dug a hole in myself it was terrible mm. And I was like, man, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. That's a scary place to dig a hole in yourself, your wrist. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty gnarly. It, like, opened up, and it took forever to heal, and it was just gross. Um, And so I tattooed my friend Brian, who I can't believe he trusted me to do it. I remember going home with him after school. His mom was at work. I tattooed in his bedroom. And it was, like, the most frustrating 45 minutes ever trying to figure out how to get this Mm -hmm. in his skin with him being like, Mm -hmm. dude, it fucking hurts, you know? (laughs) And... After that, you know, I saw it healed and it looked okay, but I was like, man, I haven't putting that away. I don't know what I'm doing, man. I'm mm-hmm. not going to fuck up my friends. And Brian was my drummer. He's, yeah. He and I were thick as thieves. We wrote all the music together, which was rad. So it was like super rhythm and bass heavy. We were kind of like a Fugazi style. What was the name of that band? That was called One Nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, awesome. I, I can't, I, I love that you have a subhumans tattoo, by the way. It's oh, yeah. So badass. I always forget I have it because it's on the <laughs> bottom of my arm. Yeah, that was a huge band for me back then, too. I was super in subhumans. But anyway, uh, Brian, then Brian got me into tattooing, really. We went on tour in 95. We came back. I dropped out of, I dropped out of college to go on tour with the band. Mm-hmm. And so we did a whole East Coast tour, and that was super fun. But then we came back like most bands, and we broke up immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, just cause you hated each other after Well, spending... you know, me, I, I liked, uh, we just had a lot of friction on tour mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the members went in a direction that I wasn't digging at the time and he thought I was being an asshole and I was kind of being an asshole, but I thought he was being a very big asshole and that ended up kind of separating us. And we'd already written a bunch of more songs. We had like five or more songs and we wanted to put out a full length album and this particular person in the band was just dragging their feet, wouldn't mm-hmm. come up with their part. And we were like, come on, man, like we got to make a move now. And I don't know what was going on for them, but they dropped out and then that broke up. So I was kind of, I was working two jobs. I was about to go back to art school at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. And then my buddy Brian, same guy I tattooed in his bedroom, uh, awesome cat, badass drummer too. And he, um, 
called me up one day. He's like, hey, man, I was just driving around. You know, he was a florist delivery guy. <clears throat> and he's like, hey, they're opening up another ink spot tattoo shop down in uh, Greenbrook, right on 22. And I'm like, that's cool, man. He's like, you should go in there. Show me your portfolio so you can get an apprenticeship. I was like, I don't know, man. You know, I'm going back to school. But he's like, dude, if you don't do it, I'm coming and picking your ass up right now. It's a good friend. And I was like, all right. So I, he got me off my ass, mm -hmm. got my art portfolio together. I went down there and I met this guy, Steve Ferguson, who I knew because I'd gotten tattooed at his shop in Elizabeth. He had two shops. And man, timing and everything. He loved my portfolio. He liked my energy, offered me apprenticeship. And that was it. I haven't, I haven't looked back since. Fuck yeah. So, Okay, let's dive in okay. to the thing that you just dropped, which oh, is yeah. um, the premise of the show. Um, every time somebody mentions, you know, just being on the road mm. with a band, especially a band with a lot of friction, I think it's kind of like being stranded in a cabin in the Colorado mountains with zombies all around. Mm. It's just as bad as that. Uh, you know, so you're going to be in this cabin and unfortunately, you know, your kids and your wife mm. aren't going to be there. They might be eaten, but we don't know that. Um, and you got um, food and water and a crank-powered Victrola and okay. five vinyl albums. So what's your first choice? Yeah, okay. Well, my thought process on this was to kind of do it in chronological order as far as, like, my experience with music growing up mm -hmm. and kind of, like, some of the staples. Yeah. Of course, I couldn't get them all in five. I've been kind of thinking about this, but these are the five that currently seem like they would be what I would bring. I'm yeah. assuming Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I like Bruce. I never liked Bon Jovi. But, um, all right, first one is Beethoven, the Ninth Symphony. Oh, wow. So, after everything that you just told me about your upbringing and then saying that this is, um, you know, in order of your musical development yeah. that is very surprising to me yes well yeah. this is pre-punk and this was like i kind of consider beethoven one of the original punk rockers anyway mm. you know he was such a controversial controversial guy and yeah, yeah i just think that his music has lasted a millennium you know it's yeah. just like holy cow it's still going um and my dad didn't listen to anything but classic mm. that was all he listened to was classical music mm. and i remember always loving beethoven uh the camarina barana um, just a bunch of different ones that he'd always play. And the Ninth Symphony always stuck out to me as a kid. And it was like the energy I get from that music was parallel to the energy I got from punk rock. Wow. So it was that same drive, like, yeah. You yeah. know, like I always felt that my dad had these big old speakers and this big stereo and he would just crank it. And we mm -hmm. just like, me and my brother would run around the house and like get crazy to the music. So Yeah. That reminds me of Charles Bukowski because as crazy as his life was and, and his, his writing, um, it's always interspersed with, you know, and then I was blasting classical music. So, yeah, you know. Classical music is amazing too when you really sit and listen to it. And it's like, I imagine, especially I also imagine being up in a cabin with zombies. Mm -hmm. It's like really good battle music. Right. And it's yeah. also like, you know. You could sit there and listen to all your favorite albums of like the 70s, 80s, whatever, but a lot of that stuff's going to have lyrics. And sometimes it's really nice to let go of the lyrics and just listen to the actual music. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. What do you play um, usually when you're tattooing people? Do you ask them what they want? 
You know, if we get on the topic of a conversation, you know, if we get into a conversation about music, which usually we do, um, and someone mentions something I haven't heard, they think I would like based on what I've played, oh, you know, I'll check it out. It doesn't happen that often, though. But uh, usually I get there first. I get to the shop early. I'm an early guy with two kids, too, so I get there at, like, 10. And so usually first person in a tattoo shop sets the mood for the day. Mm-hmm. So I tend to play um, whatever's kind of coming to my mind in that moment. And I have a pretty eclectic mix of mm-hmm. what I like. Um, let's see what I start with this morning. I started with, um, I think it was the Budos Band. Yeah. I love that. I love the Budos Band. I think they're just amazing. So That's not on your list. They're out of my list. I almost, that, that was my <laughs> almost. big, that was my one today because I really fell back into mm-hmm. the Budos Band this morning. And I was like, maybe I should put this on the list. But then I was like, eh. I don't know. I kind of, I'm kind of, I'm going to stick with this because there's a couple of things that are just, you know, too good to, to drop off. Yeah. I, um, I was in a little, um, a tattoo shop in, um, Vicenza in, in, uh, in Italy mm-hmm. and I was getting this tattoo and the chick who was tattooing me had like a real punk style and rockabilly style. And, um, I speak a little Italian, I can get by, and she spoke no English, so we were just communicating through, you know, uh, me shrieking in pain, you know. But yeah. <laughs> um, the tattoo shop I, I had speakers all around, and they were playing really bad music. It was like reggaeton and uh-huh. Coldplay and stuff. And she was wearing a Motorhead shirt, and I and I said to her, "Ti piace uh, Motorhead?" And she and and you know, she said. She said, yeah. And then I, I asked her, like, you know, do you like this music? And she said, no, not at all. And I said, well. What's, what's the holdup? What's the holdup? And I literally walked out. I said, can we take a break? And I went to the manager and I said, can you put Motorhead on? Nice. And, and the chick was, like, so shy. She was going, like, oh, you can't, you can't ask him to do that. And I said, yeah, you're getting paid to work here. And. She had a great time the rest of the time. Yeah, she, yeah. You, you put a smile right yeah. on her face. Yeah, yeah it was great. I, I've worked at shops where like it was like that. Like You didn't touch the music because that's the vibe that the yeah. owner wanted. Maybe she was a young gun, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's also like I could see why she'd be hesitant, but she pro- that's the way to do it is get mm-hmm. your client to be like, hey, can you yeah. put this on? Right. You know, that, that that's a good, good angle. Yeah. That's awesome. So take us from, um, you know... I didn't get exactly whether when you got to this apprenticeship, did you drop out of school? I'd made a deal with my dad to go back to school and do at least one semester while doing the apprenticeship and while working, I was working a job at this place called Barty Farms Mm -hmm. and we were starting another band. So I was doing all three at once, all four at once. And, um, I basically got through college to the point where I had no more. Um, all I had were core classes left. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with art. I'd taken every elective I possibly could down yeah. to nothing. So I only had I had a whole year left of just like history, math, English history, yeah, yeah. all the stuff I was not interested in. And I talked to a tattooer at that time, I think. Um, i trying to remember who I was talking to. And they said, hey, man, you ever you ever look around who's working the art school? And I was like, yeah, I noticed who's working there, who's like the janitors and stuff. He's like, who are they? Like, they're all like students. They're all people who Mm -hmm. used to work, you know, who used to go to the program. He's like, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
You have an option to go tattoo and make some serious money. These guys are here scrubbing floors just to keep their whole art thing alive because they can't get a job with it. It was really good advice. And I was like, you're right. Like, I'm not going to, you know, what's a piece of paper to me that's a diploma? For me, it wasn't fucking anything. It was like, whatever. That's mm-hmm. just what, you know, they think you need. And then all of a sudden you need some other credential to get up the ladder even further, even further. And I was like... I never wanted to do that. I was like, I just want to pave my own way. And this tattooing thing is fun. I'm getting paid well for it. I like what I'm doing. I'm interested. I'm showing up early every day for the first time in my life. Like, I'm stoked to be doing this. So, yeah, that was kind of it for me. That was the switch. So, you know, you get this this, apprentice, this apprenticeship and you finish out the semester. And then what? And then I jumped full into tattooing. I started yeah. paying my old man rent until I had enough money to move out. And uh, I had to pay off my apprenticeship back to him, too. My dad lent mm. me the money. My dad's awesome. I mean, we had our had a hard time back then. 15 to 18, we, mm-hmm. you know, it was bad. So I think I've held on to that for a lot of my life, kind of this grudge against my parents and my dad. And now that I am a parent, I see what it really is like on the other side of that. You know, it doesn't excuse everything that happened or you know, the way my dad behaved at certain times. But I respect the dude and I and I love him now for all the like times that he actually gave me the benefit of the doubt. And mm-hmm. he like, you know, helped me buy a bass guitar so I get into music. He helped me get into tattooing and pay for me to go to art school and like all kinds of stuff. You know, when it's like we were so opposite side of the spectrum, it was like, wow, you really were there for me in those hard times. Yeah. Even though I couldn't see it at the time. Right. And uh, I just feel like where I am now with that relationship with my dad and the gratitude I feel for my parents after all the crazy stuff and the alcoholism and, you know, fights and violence. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. You're here. I'm here. Made it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, it, sound, it sounds like even if you had differences, that when they could see that you were really passionate about something and not just interested in it, but working your ass off at it, then mm, they supported you. Yeah. I think that's it, too. I think that's the key to, to what made it work for me is that kind of passion, like just channeling it and figuring out where to put it. Yeah. So how does a guy who looks like you and has your, your uh, you know, interests and mm. upbringing... How do you end up here? Why are you in Boulder? What the fuck? I ask myself uh, that yeah, every day. I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> I remember um, coming out here in uh, early, you know, what was that, 99, I think was the first time I came out to Boulder. Being like, what is this place? This is so different than where I'm from. And But being stoked about it. This big open sky. Mm-hmm. People were kind. People said hello at the store. I was like, where the hell am I? Mm-hmm. And uh, So I was back in Jersey. The um, 2000 was happening, right? So the turnover, mm-hmm. the, the the millennium, the whole fucking weird mindset fear around what was going to happen and the banking numbers were going to switch and the whole world was going to collapse. And my dad was like, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe any of that. Everything's going to be fine. And then the week before the millennium hit, he bought a generator. And I remember being like, what's up with the generator, <laughs> dad? I thought you didn't believe in that stuff. He's like, oh, we needed one anyway. Like, all right, sure. But there was something in that conversation that made me realize, like, I got to get the hell out of here. And uh, I had already been to Boulder. 
and I already had kind of like set some ideas in my head about like, hey, if I was going to move anywhere, why don't I move to Boulder? My girlfriend's friend, uh, sister lived out here. And a guy, Eric, who worked at the shop as a front end guy, he worked up in Breckenridge. He was a, he was a snowboard winter guy. And uh, so he invited us out. So we came out, we snowboarded, we hung out. I was like, this is great. Excuse me. And, um, and so I started looking around at jobs. And it turned out that this really amazing tattooer from the 90s, still tattooing today down in uh, Santa Fe, Jennifer Billig, she worked at Boulder Inc. And she was taught by my boss back in Jersey. Mm -hmm. So he was like, hey, you should call Jennifer. She lives out in Colorado. I think she moved, but you can call her. So I called her and she was like, hey, you know, great to hear from you. I actually just moved to Portland. And she opened, helped open up this shop. I think she was one of the owners of Atlas Tattoo, famous tattoo shop out there. And so I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about moving to Colorado. And she's like, cool. She's like, check out my friend Alicia's spot down in uh, Denver. You know, uh, Twisted Soul. She's super awesome. And she's like, I don't know if I'd, I'd bother with Boulder Inc. Because I just left there. But, you know, do what you got to do. I was like, cool. So I set up a time with Alicia to meet her. She was super nice on the phone. Went down there. I, like, flew back out to go see her. I had a snowboard moment. Went down right before I was going to go to the airport the next day. Went to go meet Alicia. And she had totally spaced it. And she was mm. at a convention. Which I was bummed about at first. But then I met Jeff Cobb who is another amazing tattooer down in Denver. He's at Little Black Church, I think, currently, but he was at Think Tank for a long time. And um, and he was so cool to me. He was so nice to me, checked on my portfolio, took time aside, talked to me, He's apologized for Alicia not being there. He was super cool. And I had talked to the guys at Boulder, Inc. as well, because I knew I was going to be here, because my friend Rich worked with one of them back in uh, Atlanta, back in the day at Red Dragon. He was like, oh, go, go say hi to William. So I called William, I went, and he said, yeah, come by. We're not hiring, but, you know, always nice to meet a friend of a friend. So I stopped by, and I was giving my sob story about Alicia and how it didn't work out. And Lance turned to me, and he was like, well, why would you want to work down in Denver, man? Why don't you come do a guest spot here? I was like, I thought you weren't looking. He's like, oh, we don't tell anybody. We <laughs> tell people that. I was like, oh, okay. So I came out did a guest spot. That went out really well, and then I ended up moving to Boulder, like, 2000. Right there, like August of 2000. And have you been here ever since? Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Been here and, uh, I was, you know, did a short stint and we did four years in Mexico, but otherwise right. this has been home base. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's Niwat's curse, so you're, you're always going to come yeah. back once. Well, my wife is from here too, yeah. so that helps. Yeah. <laughs> so was it around that time, you know, that um, you figured out what your style was? Well, you know, I'd been tattooing for five years, and looking back now, you're so green at five years. You mm -hmm. think you've, you've come through all these obstacles, and, you know, you're starting to get, I was starting to get a handle on the machine and the tuning and, you know, how to work with skin and all that stuff. But, you know, my boss back in Jersey was a bit more of like a biker tattoo 80 style. Mm -hmm. And currently, it was kind of like new school with some traditional still happening, and hard thing about the new school style is that there were it didn't seem like there were any rules mm -hmm. so a lot of times you would do things that you think were going to look cool or work out well and they didn't look that great or they didn't work out that well and a lot of that was that you didn't have the fundamentals together enough at that time five years in to really execute a tattoo in in something beyond your comfort zone so 
it was awesome working at Boulder Inc. I met so many cool tattooers who were traveling through from Timothy Hoyer to, um, you know, Adrian Lee, uh, Paco Excel. A lot of tattooers at the time were coming through there. And then after William left, he went down to Denver. Um, the gentleman named Mr. Joe Long came along and he and I shared a room. I ended up, uh, I knew he had moved there with a family. I didn't have a family at the time and, you know, it was slow. And so I started throwing him jobs if I had work and he, he really appreciated that. So he had a lot more experience than me and was had been working under a really well-known shop in Florida. And so he started showing me stuff and I, I was hungry. I took it and ran with it and mm. he got excited about that. So he'd give me more and give me more and, you know, homework and paintings. And also now I was just like, yeah, I was just like getting it all. Yeah. And, um, my buddy Chris over there, Peewee, he, uh, he reluctantly started showing me some stuff too once I showed him some interest. And he actually taught me a lot about painting. <laughs> He's a really amazing painter. So, um, yeah, that, that was Boulder Inc. It was kind of my introduction formally to the underground currents of tattooing. Yeah. So we did a lot of conventions and we traveled and we went to like other cool tattoo shops around and had a lot of guest artists and then I would meet the guest artists. They, some of them would like me and invite me to their shop. So I started traveling to other shops to guest spots and you know, it was yeah. cool. It was, it was a nice network to tap into all of a sudden. Well, let's pause in the, the timeline here oh, yeah. for a sec and go to your second album. Second. Okay. Um, 1982 social distortion released mommy's little monster and that has been probably one of my favorite albums in my life i love it from the first note to the last and um uh, my brother brought home a mixtape probably like 86 or 87 and i before that i was listening to like rat like Cinderella mm -hmm. and like, you know, some ACDC, but like I was listening to a lot of that kind of cheesy metal at the time, trying to figure out what I liked. Before that, I was into the police because my brother liked the police and they were really good and I still like the police, but I hadn't really heard anything underground before. And so he put in this mixtape and we were hanging out and I was like, a lot of it was like, you know, it was Black Flag, Circle Jerks, um, you know, the germs, stuff like that. And mm -hmm. at first it was really intense and I didn't really dig a lot of it. But then all of a sudden this super melodic song came on and it was, um, it was telling them off of that album. That mm -hmm. It was just like, oh shit, man, this is the juice. Yeah. And I found myself like fast forwarding and rewinding to those songs because there was one on side A and one on side B and I just wanted to hear Social Distortion. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, that album is still, uh, yeah. That would if I had to bring one album with me, that might be. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Like, there's something about that album, and I think what it really ties in with is you know I found Youth Brigade through that because I watched, you know, Another State of Mind, which for anybody who doesn't know, that was an amazing documentary made back in the '80s about Social Distortion's first tour with Youth Brigade, and they did Canada and the U.S. a huge <clears> tour, and you know. Friendships lost, friendships gained, some of the band broke up, some mm. of the band came back, they met Minor Threat along the way, and they played with all these other cool bands. So for me, that that album is like just locked in that space and time in my brain. And yeah. uh, it always brings me back every time. And whenever I'm in kind of like a lower mood, I can I put that album on and I'm like 15 again. So. Now I'll be silent, yes, no one will know 
Thirst, Colorado, covers Colorado lifestyle and the state's booming craft libation scene. The magazine offers ideas for getting out to events and activities all over Colorado, and ideas for what to drink after your adventures. Thirst has Colorado's most robust statewide events calendar and a comprehensive craft drinks directory. Pick up the magazine at fine establishments all over Colorado and sign up for their newsletter and check out thirstcolorado.com for even more free content and great giveaways. Thirst Colorado, drink up the Colorado experience. Well, you look like you could be in Mike Ness's band too. Well, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Mike had a lot of tattoos. You know, back Mm -hmm. then in the 80s, he was one of the first tattooers to get a lot of tattoos. He had a Bob Roberts tattoo, who's a real well-known tattooer in the U.S. And, you know, as I got into tattooing and, you know, looking at uh, Ed Hardy's Tattoo Time, and there's a rock and roll part in this one, uh, one of the the issues of that, and there's Mike Ness getting the skull with the cigarette. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, that that whole thing has followed me throughout even my tattooing career. So do you have a tattoo of that? I don't. Do you have any tattoos of bands like, you know, band related tattoos? I don't think I do. I never did that for some reason. I never really got anything that was super like, like a stamp like that. I don't know. Right. It just wasn't my style. Um, I have too many. Probably. Yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> well, that's your thing, right? It's like, oh, cool. You, you know, it's a cool mm. keepsake. I was, I was, I think, more interested, and I think I tattoo like that as well. I'm always, when, especially when it's bigger work, I'm always interested in the storyline. Yeah. Right. I like a storyline and a tattoo where you look at an image and you're like, it's provoking. It makes you think mm-hmm. about like, oh, wow, what's going on there? Like, who are these characters? What's the interaction with yeah. this and that? And so... I think based on that, that's also how I got tattooed. Yeah. I met some great tattooers in the 90s. Steve Moore up in Canada tattooed me at the Roseland convention. I think it might have been year two there that 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 convention happened. And I rolled up to get tattooed by Aaron Kane, who was a real famous tattooer at the time, still is. And uh, this guy, this tall guy was sitting in his booth and nobody was getting tattooed by him. I'm like, hey, is this Aaron's booth? He's working for little Vinnie Myers at the time. And he's like, oh, Aaron's not here, but, you know, I'm sitting in a stay. I'm like, cool, who are you? He's like, oh, I'm Steve Moore. I'm from Canada. I was like, cool. Okay, you have a portfolio? He's like, yeah. And his portfolio was like, I was like, why is no one getting tattooed by this guy? This, this stuff is amazing. And it was totally like the direction I wanted to go tattooing, like super storyteller. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he gave me this green man right here, this piece right here at that convention. And uh, he was the coolest guy. And he convinced me to go get tattooed by Aaron down in Maryland anyway and drive whatever it was, nine hours down to go get tattooed. And then uh, we started a friendship. Every time he would come out, I'd get tattooed by him. And then when I moved to Colorado, I still got tattooed by him up in Vancouver. And then he asked me to come up and do a guest spot. And, you know, it was was cool, man. So something that people who aren't um, a tattoo, especially tattoo artist, lifers, um don't understand and maybe have not even heard about is that it's not uncommon to say I want to get tattooed by this certain artist and 
you don't know what they're going to tattoo you with. Yeah. You get an appointment and you say, I want you to tattoo me. Yeah. Now, most people, especially if you don't even have one tattoo, you can't even conceive of making an appointment to have somebody draw whatever they want. It's true. There, there's a certain amount of trust you get. And I think people who've been tattooing long enough, they just kind of exude that because their body of work is huge and people see the work that they've done on other people and they're like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Go to go to Tim Lehi, get this badass tattoo because whatever he does is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as a younger tattooer, you don't really quite understand that because you don't have that kind of clientele yet and you're right. not putting out that kind of work yet. So... For me, getting tattooed, and this is the way I like to be approached, is I like to have a catalyst. Because actually, it's really hard. It's like being, you know, drawing or painting or anything else or writing a song. You just be like, write me a song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, okay, well, like, what kind of song? What genre? What's the tempo? Like, you know, is there a subject key you matter. want it to be yeah. in? What's the subject matter? Mm-hmm. I, I need something to need a spark. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing with tattooing. Like, some of my favorite tattoos... I just did a loose sketch or sent a, a picture out of a book I liked at the time to the tattooer, showed them the space I wanted to get it, and then like was happy as hell when I came in and they had drawn something that they wanted to do in that genre on yeah. me. And and that was it. And a lot of times you're like, I would look for tattooers whose style I liked, and mm-hmm. I go get tattooed by them on purpose, and I'd try to find something I thought would go well with their style. And, man, we love that. Yeah. Tattooers love that because it's like, wow, you're trusting me to do my version of that in that style. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's that's the best case scenario. So I always tried to be that kind of client, getting mm. tattooed. As somebody uh, like me who doesn't have an art education, how do you describe your style? I mean, for me, mm. the only words I can think of as a complete uh, uh, <laughs> know-nothing in tattoos, even though I have like a bunch is a Japanese mixed with like the sailor Jerry. That's you know. pretty accurate. I mean, let's see. I would say people ask me like, what's your style? I'm like, well, I started tattooing in an era in the nineties when you had to do multiple styles to survive because mm-hmm. there weren't that many shops. You had the big name shops and you had the big name tattooers who've been doing it long enough that they had steady work. But even they went through dry spells in the winter. And, um, you know, I think for me it was like, okay, I have to get good at a lot of different styles in order to be able to take whatever walks in the door. Because back then you're living hand to mouth, you know. It's kind of like, shit, I didn't do any tattoos today. There was no Mm walk-ins. You didn't have people online booking stuff. You didn't have Instagram. You didn't have any of that stuff to, like, find people. People couldn't find you. You just had your local body of people in whatever your metro area was who would be attracted to work that you did. That was mm-hmm. that was the way you got known. Um, if you were lucky enough, you'd get uh, picked up by a magazine, and that would go out, and people would hear about you then, or you'd do really well at a convention, and your name would get out there. So it wasn't as easy as nowadays where you can just, like, you know, buy subscribers to your Instagram page or whatever mm-hmm. and, and be an instant, like, have all these people want to get tattooed. So, um so I would say that in itself has really given me an idea of, you know, a direction to head in, which was everywhere. I was kind of heading everywhere. And I did the same thing in art school. In art school, I couldn't lock in a major because I loved sculpture. I loved painting. I loved drawing. I loved poetry. I loved, yeah. 
I loved it all. I was like hungry for everything. Yeah. Um, printmaking, you know, and all that stuff. And so with tattooing, I actually got invited to go work up in Vancouver with a really famous tattooer named the Dutchman. His name's John. And he, um, he's kind of like the Ed Hardy of Canada. If you had someone you had to kind of pull a parallel with. Awesome guy, great tattooer. But what I loved about meeting the Dutchman was like he was super down to earth. He said, hey, you want me to look at your portfolio? I said, sure. And he looked through it, and I had all this American traditional stuff because that's what I was learning from the guys at Boulder, Inc. and my peers, and I was kind of trying to figure out the roots of tattooing. So I was doing a lot more. Um, and traditional work was coming back, kind of that Sailor Jerry style. And he said, well, these look great, but is this all you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? You know? And he's like, well, I always think that a tattooer that can do a really great tattoo in multiple styles is really heading in the right direction. And that's something that like I admire. I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, it's like a lotus or an onion. You just keep pulling back layer after layer. And then you never get bored. You mm -hmm. never get tired. You never get like, ah, oh, I used to tattoo. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're like in it because you can do so many different things with tattooing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny to me because that, that became kind of my mon my montage. I was like, oh, cool. Right. Like, I want to get good at multiple things. I don't just want to be a one-trick pony. And that takes years to get there. It takes a long time. And I wouldn't even say I'm there yet, you know? Mm. And so that's what I really appreciate about the Dutchman is kind of showing me that avenue. Like, you don't have to just be one kind of tattooer. Yeah. You can be multiple faceted and you can be really good at all that. You just got to put the time in. You got to have the passion, the energy, and be open to feedback. And so that's always been kind of my approach. And uh, so it's hard for me to say when people say, what's your style? I'm kind of like, well, I do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. What do I like to do? I love to do a Japanese traditional mix with uh, maybe some Tibetan or Buddhist influence. But I also like doing savage pirate seascape tattoos. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love all that stuff. You know, there's a guy named Greg Irons. 80s tattooer who was an illustrator first and um he was an incredible art artist in my opinion and i always loved his tattoos his water style was like revolutionized the way people did water and tattooing and so i always studied that really deeply yeah. and so for me yeah i love doing that as well i love doing uh black and gray i love doing color i love doing a combo of the two so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's the best I got. <laughs> not boring is basically... Yeah, not, boring. not boring. That's a good way to say it. Okay, number three. What's your number three choice? All right, number three, The Pogues, If I Should Fall from Grace with God. came out in 1988. Fist bump. Yeah. And there's a track on there. Um, first of all, this is one of my buddy Brian, the guy who got me the tattoo mm. and my favorite drummer in the world. He kind of showed me this album. He's in, comes from an Irish family. Uh, Brian McCarthy's his name. And so, you know, he grew up with the Pogues, but I had never even heard him before. Mm -hmm. So he started introducing me to them. This is the first album that he lent me. And I must have burned a hole in that CD when I got it. Or maybe it was a tape back then. But um, I think I got that early 90s. So it's a CD. And um, something about that album in particular that really speaks to me. I love that there's stuff like, you know, Lullaby of, uh, on Broadway's on there. And then there's Turkish Song of the Damned. And... Yeah. Turkish Song of the Dam for me was like the first time I've ever heard that kind of Roma, 
uh, gypsy, fast paced, mm-hmm. like wild. Like what you like, said before about a savage pirate scene, yes. that's the end of Turkish Song. Exactly. Where they're yeah. just howling in the background. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, what is this? This is, this speaks to my soul. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, this is, this is who I, I loved it. Did you ever get a chance to see Shane McGowan? I did. I saw him with the Popes. I saw him yeah. here in in Boulder. He played at the the Boulder Theater. Oh, wow. The second year I was here, like nice. 91 or, or no, 2001 or 2002. Wow. And I remember, I think it was 2001. And I went and uh, and he came on 45 minutes late <laughs> and Dvachka opened for oh, him. Oh, nice. And Dvachka had to play their set twice because they didn't have enough <laughs> They had to just keep going. So, yeah. um yeah, so we got to hear two sets of Dvachka, which were the same songs. And then Shane McGowan came on, and he was drinking peach schnapps. I remember that. And he was just so drunk for the first three songs that he just stood there like like a dead person. Mm. And then I don't know what happened. Like, third song in, he, like, something caught fire, and he started just pulled up a girl on stage and started dancing like a maniac. And I, it was great. That's awesome. It was a good show. Um, have you ever refused to tattoo somebody? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because they were inebriated, or yeah, I've had maybe one or two where someone was too drunk, and I'm like, dude, this is not going to be ugly. It's not worth my time. Like, mm-hmm. Come back when you're sober. Yeah, um, and then I've had ones where, you know, I was starting to draw on something on somebody, and a tattooer tapped me on the shoulder. I got a shoulder tap, and they're like, you know what that is? I was like, what? Like, That's a white power symbol. Oh no! I was like, this is a white power symbol. Holy shit! I thought it was just a cool hammer, hammer of Thor. And I'm a, I'm a so yeah, super yeah. geek for you know mythology. So I was like, yeah. But then like you know looking at the guy and the patches on his jacket and like all that stuff, I was like, oh, this is a white power dude. And I just was going up to him. I was like, hey man, you know like brought to my attention what this is man and it's just you know I, I just can't do this tattoo on you man i just don't believe in that what was the reaction he was actually fine he was like all right and he just left he it's gotta be weird that it, it's like part way done too no i didn't tattoo it i was drawing oh you were drawing it i was okay. drawing yeah, it. Yeah. i was drawing what he wanted i was in the back room drawing it and someone shouldered at me i was like you know what that is and i was mm. like oh oh no i did not know that but now i do so wow um and then i've had people just rude rude <clears throat> people who just like weren't respecting my space or other tattooers or the front end guy i'm just like hey man you know this isn't your spot sorry <clears throat> so yeah i think that's a big thing a lot of people want the tattoo their way and they don't realize that they're kind of coming into your world and they you know they maybe not be aware of that and so for me it was a little bit like hey you gotta wake up here man like this isn't McDonald's. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, I heard a funny story recently, and, and I it was on a podcast, and I think I, I sent it to Kiri, but it, it was this, this woman who uh, surprised her boyfriend by saying, I'm going to buy you a tattoo. It's going to be my name, real big letters on your neck. And, and so... Um, but the second that it's finished, (laughs) he's like, this is the greatest thing, blah, blah, blah. So the second that it's finished, um, she tells him and the artist and everybody in the shop, she says, I know you cheated on me. I have the proof right here. And you're going to have to pay for this tattoo and not my name. It's on you. See you later. Yeah. That's cruel. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cruel, that's a cruel move, man. (laughs) 
He must have really pissed her off, man. That's that's yep. hard. That's tough. <laughs> Damn. I anyway, don't even, I don't even know what I would do as a tattooer if that happened. <laughs> yeah, what would you I do? I just be like, what the hell was that? I, yeah, I, I have no idea what I did. I'd be like, well, dude, you got a credit card? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to you for half price. Half price. So it's my impression, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think in the timeline where we are, we can bring up your amazing wife. Oh yeah, and meeting her. Uh, it's my impression. yeah. We're right there. We're right there. Two thousand three. Yeah. I met Kiri. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think Kiri coming into your life maybe meant um, I mean a lot of things, but hmm. you know um, uh, maybe a deeper interest and in participation in spirituality. But yeah. then also like a business sense. Oh, man, everything switched. Yeah. I was going to just ride it out. I was just mm-hmm. going to hang, have tattoo, a job. and have a job. Mm-hmm. I have a great story about Carrie. This is, this is a little anecdote about her that is kind of encapsulates our relationship and who she is in the world. Because she's, she's an amazing person, if any of you know her. Anyway, um, so we were dating for about a year. And she was supposed to go off um, to Africa. She was going to Kenya. She was going to be there for an eighth-month job. Mm-hmm. And her visa kept getting pushed back because there was a lot of unrest around uh, Nairobi where she was going to be staying, and they weren't granting her visa based on security reasons. So we kept hanging out. And I was supposed to be a summer fling. Mm-hmm. So we kept hanging out, went to Mexico. We did some really fun road trips, and we just kind of fell for each other. And she's like, well you know, I got this thing going, you know? And I was like, well, I don't care, man. I'll just hang out here and I'll paint and I'll send you, you know, tapes and stuff. And we'll mm-hmm. just like, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. I'll see you in eight months. Mm-hmm. And she was a little taken aback by that. She never met anybody who was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Not like make her sacrifice her dreams to come stay with me so I could be secure kind of thing. You yeah. know? And I'm like, nah, man, like you got to do your thing. I dig your passion. I dig what you're into. And, um, so she went over there to work with this human rights organization. She was helping open up a, um, a new kind of chapter over there. And so I drive her to the airport and I get her there and I'm, I'm nervous. I'm like, man, she's flying. I'm not going to see her for eight months. This is crazy. And, uh, you know, we're kind of like hugging on each other, like kind of young lovers would. And we get to security. She's about to go through security. I was like, damn, I wish I could get on that plane with you. Mm-hmm. And she goes, really? I want you to save your money and come to Kenya and ask me to marry you. And then she just walks away. <laughs> and I'm just standing there like, whoa, you know, like, holy shit. And I was like, I accept your challenge, you know. <laughs> so I went home and I figured out my, my uh, visa and I figured out my, um, I had to get all these shots for yellow fever yeah. and malaria medicine and all this stuff. Got my passport lined up and uh, I got her grandmother's ring from her mother and her dad mm-hmm. got me all stoned and tried to like pull a joke on me while I was asking for her hand. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was great. It was perfect. But then I went there and, and we did it. And it's just, and that's what I like about her. She's just like, oh yeah? A challenge mm-hmm. but in the most like she sees what you need to move more than you know what you need right. to move and she just like it helps you find that spot and it's yeah. all out of love and confidence for you so that's carrie to me and that's kind of like yeah like you said that's a great great thing to notice that she really did shift my life yeah yeah and was it um you know 
starting your own business, Rising Tide, was that also a dare? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. She was like, you know, I was bitching about the shop as people bitch about where they work. Mm -hmm. She's like, well, you know, if you're so upset about it, what, what would you want? Would you ever want to open up your own shop? And I was like, well, not now, you know, when I'm, when I'm a real tattooer. She's like, well, babe, you, you're a real tattooer. Mm -hmm. like, don't, why don't you just open up your own shop and just give it a shot, you know? And I was like, I can do that? You know, it was almost, almost someone giving me permission to try. And she's like, yeah, we can figure that out. Why not? Granted, this is someone who's, you know, walked across, you know, borders and war zones with mm -hmm. like money strapped to them and like done crazy shit in her life. So yeah. her fear level compared to like me mm -hmm. was so much different. You know, she was so like, why, why is this even an obstacle for you? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, I've never done anything like that. So... So yeah, it was huge, you know, and uh, I started by opening up a small shop down on Pearl Street. My friend Mason kind of asked me, hey, you want to ever think about jumping from Boulder Inc.? And, you know, I have a spot here in the back if you ever want to open a little shop. And I went and checked that out, and I was like, oh, this has potential. And so I went for it. And the timing was amazing because we were also planning a trip back to, to, to Tibet. We'd never been to Tibet, and um, my friend Tomlin was going back to Tibet. He's a Tibetan refugee. He was shot in the 80, uh, the riots there in 85, I think it was. Anyway, in the 80s, there was a riot in Lhasa and he got shot. He ended up leaving on foot and getting a uh, green card to the U.S. And he ended up in my father-in-law's school as a janitor. Mm -hmm. Met Kiri, who helped him with his English and helped him get into college here at, um, what's, what's the regular college here? Not CU, but the... Front Range? Front Range, yeah. thank you. Yeah, the Front Range College. And he graduated with honors and did all this amazing stuff, and he started this NGO to, to help build bridges and help people back in rural Tibet. And this was his first time going back as an American citizen because he had passed. He invited us to go, and he said, Sister, I know you want to go. Come with me. And so we went. And it all coincided with me opening this shop that, like, I jumped from Boulder, Inc., and then I took... I think I took two months or three months off and we went to Tibet and I didn't have any bills to pay. I didn't have any rent. I didn't have anything until I got back. Yeah. So it was kind of a really interesting spot in our world to like have that much time. And I'd never taken that much time off from my normal life. And she was like, what? Because, you know, she had. So a lot of it was that, you know, she was really kind of showing me the ropes. And I think she was always looking for someone who was willing to go where most people were uncomfortable going. That's punk rock, actually. And Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck yeah, I've been waiting for someone like you my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of like this really great meeting of these two people, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm really fortunate to be one of them. So. Okay, number four. Number four is Tom Waits, 2006 Orphans, The Brawlers, Ballers, and Bastards. It's a three-album set, so, I mean, that's that's a lot of songs to That's have. what I figure. I'd yeah. like if I'm going to be there that long. And what I really like about Tom Waits on these albums in particular, I, I my stepping stone to Tom Waits was um, was Mule Variations. That was the yeah. first album that I actually heard of his, and it was like, whoa. I'm um, big like, in Japan. I love this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can never forget the beginning of that mm -hmm. song. It was like that was the, my first intro to Tom Waits, and... Uh, and then when I got to Boulder Inc., all those cats listened to Tom Waits. Many mm -hmm. of them had seen him live and you know, all this stuff. So when, when this Orphans album came out, I was like, oh, I'll check it out. And what I really liked about it, 
and you might know more about it than I do, but from what I remember of it is that it's kind of a collection of stuff that he was kind of working on over a long period of time, yeah. even while he was releasing other albums. So He says that those are the three sorts of songs that he writes. Right. You know, so it's not just like a title of each album. He's he's really putting them in a category. And I, I love it because for me, it was almost like getting to know him personally. Mm-hmm. Right? It was like yeah. almost like like an interview like this. It's almost right, like right. each one is so distinctly different and so cool in their own way. And there's such a body to each individual section of mm-hmm. those three that it's like, wow, you really get this full 360 view of Tom Waits and his mm-hmm. writing style and his mind and his personality. Yeah. and. And I love it. There's love songs on there. There's, there's a Ramon there's song. Silent songs. There's a Ramon song yeah. on there. Sound checks at 502. Record stores and interns. But I can't wait to be with you tomorrow. I love just his like rattling off a weird shit like that one where he's talking to a kid about cars he used to oh yeah you know there's like so many cool little things on there so it's kind of like well if i'm gonna be in a cabin my family can't be there kiri can't be there and i got zombies up in the woods like Mm -hmm. at least tom waits can be there with me yeah that's that's great (laughs) um i want to talk about sun camp and just uh i mean it's not called shambhala mountain center anymore it's called the the Drala, the DMC. DMC, you know? I love it. Drala Mountain. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, I mean, I guess we could explain to listeners what um, Shambhala Mountain Center was founded by, I'm going to try to say this, I get made fun of all the time, but Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, yeah. um, the Tibetan um, um, who came to America in the early 70s and started Naropa University and then all these other things. And... Um, Shambhala Sun Camp is for kids aged, I don't know. 10. They start at 10. And so you can't go later than 16, right? Yeah, 10 to 16. 16 is um, the last part of the program. Yeah. So it's a combination summer camp slash, you know, military exercises, but it's all in good fun. Well, the, the interesting about the military exercise, usually people hear that and they get really turned right. off. And that that's a Kasung thing, too. There's a There's a certain section of the Shambhala world, as Trumpa saw it, that was called the Kasung, and they basically hold the space. That's basically mm-hmm. what they are, is holders of the space. And a lot of people get turned off because they're in uniform and it looks very militant. But the greatest thing about it is that if you listen to what they're saying mm-hmm. and what they're actually practicing, it's the complete opposite side of the coin. Yes. So their big thing is victory over war. Right. You know? And... um it's all about peace and compassion and holding the space within that. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to take, in the Western mind, we are so individualized from what we wear to what we eat to what we listen to to, you know, what kind of car we drive. Yeah. And the idea I think Trumpa had, at least as far as the little bit that I know about this, I'm definitely not an expert, but the part that I really like about this is that what Trumpa did here is he stripped all that away. It's like mm-hmm. almost going to Catholic school and everyone wears a uniform. All of a sudden there's no, you know, class, there's no, you know, wealth index. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you're all the same. Yeah. You're yeah. all dressed the same. You're all in uniform. And there's certain things you have to do within those forms. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're practicing mindfulness, compassion, 
and empathy towards each other. Yeah. And so to have kids learn that at such a young age that like, wow, we are all actually the same underneath it all, mm -hmm. all these layers we wear. For what I see when I go up there and I watch these kids and my daughter is one of them is it's amazing to see them strip off the layers. They don't have their cell phone. They don't have exactly. you know, their chat rooms. They don't have whatever clothes they're wearing. They're all wearing the same stuff. And all of a sudden it becomes all of a sudden they're kids again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the few places where a kid can be uh, completely wild. You know, the way that we were as yeah. kids where your parents would just in, in the summer, they would say, leave the house. You're not allowed to come back until, you know, yeah. there was literally in Pittsburgh, there was a siren at like six o'clock oh, really? and you'd come home. And, uh, uh, it's one of the sun camp is, is one of the few places where you can do that and be safe. Yeah. My kid loves sun camp so much that they dream about it. So good. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah. I never went to sun camp as a kid. I didn't, because mm -hmm. I didn't come out here until 2000, yeah. right? And, you know, it was well past 16. But I got offered the opportunity to staff sun camp. Mm -hmm. And when I got offered that opportunity, I jumped on it. And it was, like, so amazing because I got to experience this rite of passage as these kids were having as an adult. Mm -hmm. and watching it from the outside and being part of it is, like, it was uniquely special. And yeah. it changed me. And it actually, like soothe a lot of my wounds from that age oh wow just seeing these kids go through it and how they were actually having a different experience yeah and i was like wow like young phil nice man this is <laughs> it like i can't believe i'm here you know yeah like, have you ones. we were talking in the car earlier me and say uh um wondering if if you have had uh, a kid in sun camp and then tattoo them later yes yeah yes they're all coming to age right now you're right right so yeah i've tattooed i would say four or five kids that i've wrote not only from sun camp but there's another camp there called family camp right run right. by steve Sachs and rachel um rachel spacing rachel's last name but anyway uh, you guys know who I'm talking about if you know them, but uh, they run a thing called Family Camp up there, and Family Camp is almost like the junior version of Sun Camp, mm -hmm. but the parents are involved, so parents actually get to go and have an experience of parenting as path, parenting mm -hmm. as a teaching, and how you can actually incorporate these Buddhist philosophies mm -hmm. into actually dealing with kids and raising kids and watching your own mind and all that and not losing your shit and yeah. falling back on patterns. So that's a really amazing thing. So I've watched kids go through that with my kids mm -hmm. and some of these kids were older than my kids when we entered and I staff that every year. I love that. And watching these kids go from that and then to sun camp and then doing their ROW at sun camp and graduating sun camp and then going in to get tattooed and, yeah. Almost all of them are getting stuff sun camp based. So wow. it's like, yeah. it's pretty cool because it's like, wow, like you guys did the whole gambit. You're going to have such a, an interesting life with this as your base. So, yeah. And Carrie's one of those kids. Carrie went to sun mm -hmm. camp, but did the whole thing. And rights of, of warriorship. Good, yeah. A lot of my good thing. friends are, are, um, from that program. They're all really interesting people. I had a conversation with, with Clay a few years ago after my kid, yeah. had been in sun camp and i said would you ever you know let your kids be in sun camp 
because Clay did that when he was yeah, a kid. Yeah. And he said, fuck no, that's insane. <laughs> like, it was the worst thing ever. I wouldn't trust any of those people with my kid. And then I said, what about Phil? And he said, oh, yeah, I trust him. Oh, and then I cool. said, what about Saul? Yeah, I would trust him. What about Vajra? Oh, yeah, I trust him too. Yeah. It was like all the people I listed who are staffing Sound Camp. He was like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. He's like, yeah, actually, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, the old staff is different. It, mm. it's, it's different from what it was. As you yeah. talk to any of those Sound Campers, like Clay's, Jen, that was, yeah. those were the wild years. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, that, Sound was, Camp. that was a different time. It is not like that. It's no. not like that anymore. <laughs> But, but I, I really, I actually think it would be great if Clay staffed. Oh yeah, he'd be great up there, man. It'd be yeah. awesome for him, especially seeing it from the other side. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. Yeah, that would be great. Um, and I asked my kid earlier. Oh, I'm going to be interviewing Phil. What should I ask him? And they said, uh, um, Is he going to staff Suncat? <laughs> that was the first question. Well, me and Kiri are kind of trying to figure that out. As far as like, I really like staffing. But she also wants a chance. So I staffed mm-hmm. last time. Yeah. So it's kind of her time. It's her turn. Oh, you don't to want staff. to staff at the same time? Well, it's hard when we, because we have both kids. Yeah. And the problem is that they usually put son camp and family camp, like they butt them right next to each other. Right. And they don't know the schedule till like the spring. So mm-hmm. it's really challenging to have all the timing work out with two kids running the business. And, yeah. you know, if Kiri went up and did family camp or son camp, then I would probably have to figure out what I would be doing, whether it be family camp. It, basically, it's taking two weeks off from our lives, yeah. and that is a little challenging with all of the rest we have going on. But anyway, it's Kiri's turn next, yeah. I believe. <laughs> Unless she gives it to me. But I'll t- if I get it, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm in. I love it. Did you actually uh, tattoo the, your, your father-in-law? No, I've been trying. You've been trying? I've been trying for a long time to get oh, my man. tattoo. Yeah, but he's actually the first person that uh, I sat with in meditation. He's the one, not Kiri, who introduced me to, you know, Shambhala. Yeah. And uh, oh, wow. Buddhist teachings. And, you know, I would say I'm kind of a satellite on that world. I never really gelled that much with the old, um, with the Saki on that much and his his um, his way of doing things. And it wasn't that I didn't like him. I just didn't feel any spark. I didn't, I wasn't inspired by it. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I find that, you know especially when it comes to Buddhism, if you believe in it, it's kind of like you have lifetimes to achieve enlightenment. So like, I feel like I'm still processing the early lessons that I learned in Buddhism. So it's not a race. And I think that's part of the thing that I took away from what has gone down with uh, Shabal in general is that like, it's not a race. You Mm -hmm. know, you're not going to race to enlightenment. Right. You know, it might not be of this lifetime, sorry to say. Might There's not a trophy might either. Be another one. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like, you know, be open to the lessons that I'm learning now and be open to the programs that present themselves to me. And that's yeah. the way I feel about Sun Camp. Like, if it presents itself to me and it's my time to go, I'll go. I'll mm-hmm. be there every time. But I just don't like to push the river, you know. Yeah, yeah. So before I ask you your, your, your final choice, okay. uh, you know, I want to let you know this this episode is going to be polarizing because some people say Buddhist and some people say Buddhist, you know, so <laughs> I don't know. Buddhist and Buddha. <laughs> some people might be upset by this episode. Well, you so. know, it's okay. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number five choice. This is your, your right. last album. My last album. And this is, this one I was kind of debating and I had another one in its place, but 
I realized that I've been listening to this album for a long time and that um, I always like it when I put it on. It's great to drive to. I love tattooing to it, especially late night. When we have an art show, we do art shows at the studio. Mm-hmm. And when we have an art show, it always, like, I see people rocking out to it when I put it on. So um, this is uh, 2012, St. Germain. The album is Tourist. I have never heard this. So you, oh, it's so good. You got to tell me about it. Oh, you got to check it out. It's What I love about it, it's the first of that genre. And I think it does it the best. At least it's the first that I heard. There might be others. People who know this music might know it more than I. But as far as I'm concerned, this was the first album that I came across where someone had taken like old blues stuff. Like there's a lot of John Lee Hooker thrown into a lot mm. of the songs. And there's other artists that you recognize and they're put into the songs and they're kind of like in it. And um, so it's kind of, you know, I don't really know that genre very well because I grew up in the punk rock scene, but it's like kind of that early house music where Mm. it was still very musical and it wasn't just electronica. Right. So it's like actual drum sounds and guitar. And then he fed into it like um, there's this one great track on there with John Lee Hooker in it. And it's just like, I love John Lee Hooker. He's like one of my favorites. I just love his voice and his yeah. cadence and his way of writing and his storytelling. And he's just kind of like the essential old guru kind of musician to me. Mm-hmm. So he's on this album quite a bit. But I think what I love about this album the most is that from track one all the way to the end, it's so well put together. It's one of those albums. That it's like seamless. Yeah, you don't hear those very often anymore. People don't, I feel like, put enough time into how they put their albums together mm-hmm. and it doesn't like there's some albums that just have that flow where it's just like from track one to track the end track you're just like wow that was so well executed it's like they're putting on a, a performance yeah and that this is one of those albums it's just that you can listen to it over and over and over and over i'll check it out for sure yeah i think you like it yeah. it's really good it's one of my favorites okay so you're also gonna get uh as you're escaping and uh mm. you know everyone else is is uh, not surviving. Yeah. Uh, you can um, bring... Am I just barehanded? Do I have any weapons? <laughs> yeah, you got... Uh, well, um, you can have one item as long as you can carry it. So if you wanted to bring a weapon... Interesting. As a Dungeons and Dragons guy, yeah. maybe your weapon is some sort of, you know... Man. Probably bow and arrow I'd bring. Get more shots. You could take down some game if you needed to. I don't know. Yeah. Just... Spitball, but anyway, yeah. So what what happens at the end here? What happens at the end? Yeah. You're stuck, man. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I'm just stuck in there with my bow yeah. and arrow. Yeah, your bow and arrow. Five records. All right, I'll yeah. take it. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for being here. It was a hey, blast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for yeah. inviting me. I'm flattered. Yeah, man. Awesome. That was Phil Bartell of Rising Tide Tattoo and Boulder, and also Shambhala Sun Camp, Family Camp, all that good stuff. That was really fun. There's a new Mile High Stash every Monday for as long as I can keep this up, but uh, tomorrow, as sort of a Valentine's Day holiday special, I'll be back with Nick Urata of Debachka, um, who connected with me recently to discuss uh, his career with Dvachka, his Mile High Stash, and his career uh, doing soundtracks in, in Hollywood. Um, this whole podcast thing is way more work 
than I ever imagined. And it's also really fun getting to know all these interesting guests. Um, if you want to help me keep Mile High Stash going, there's actually a donate button at milehighstash.com. And you can drop a few bucks on Venmo, too, at AdamIce9. See you very soon. Kiki, so-so. I want to go back to Martell.